Well, this morning we are continuing our study through First and Second Samuel, lessons from the kingdom for today, and I'm going to spare you a lengthy recap because now we're almost at the end. We'll, we'll cut to the chase. David is king of Israel, and there's there's not a whole lot more uh, happening in terms of upheaval and things like that. No more challenges to his his rule and authority. We're near the end of David's story, actually. And although today's passage, it actually doesn't involve David. It, it does, rather. Excuse me. It does involve David directly. But we're also taken back to Israel's first king, Saul. Uh, David and the nation, they're going to have to reckon with sins committed by David's predecessor. We might be surprised that God is even concerned about those events that took place in Israel's history a, a long time ago, relatively speaking. But as we dig into them, I think we're going to learn some things about, about prayer, the importance of our commitment, our, our word, repentance, forgiveness, as well as the making of amends for our uh, mistakes and sins. I read that when uh, Panfilio de uh, Narvaez, the Spanish conquistador and patriot, lay dying, that his father confessor, the priest who'd come to him, asked him whether he had forgiven all of his enemies. I'm sure he was performing last rites. Well, Narvaez looked astonished and said, Father, I have no enemies. I shot them all. <laughs> I some of us tend to deal that way with our problems and our enemies. We just uh, kind of do away with them in, in that way. We eradicate them. We dominate them. But God has a different plan. He wants us to humble ourselves, to repent, to make amends, to seek, to extend, and to receive actual forgiveness. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 26 this morning. And our message is titled, Making It Right Instead of being right. Some of us really like to be right. So when I say some of us, I mean you. But um, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know. Instead of making it right, it's that, that's God's greater concern. Um, it's easy. It's easy for us to resent our enemies, those who, as Jesus put it, spitefully use us and persecute us. And, and frankly, um, it can be easy and, and natural to a degree to, to use people, to persecute them, to spitefully use them as, uh, as Jesus spoke to. And, and in this room, we've no doubt got uh, people guilty of both. Today's passage, this morning's verses, they're going to challenge us to take responsibility for offenses, those that we've offended and those who have offended us. So we'll begin with verses one through two. And uh, as we do that, let's pause a moment and pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we're asking God that you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear, to receive, to see those things that maybe we might be naturally blind to, Lord. They might be blind spots in our lives. God, would you, in, in that way that, God, you, you, do so well by your spirit, which you reveal to us and show us, God, the ways that you're calling us to change and the places, God, that you are inviting us to go. And I thank you, Father, that, that when you call us to do something, Lord, you equip us, you enable us, Lord. So if we, if we hear from you things this morning that maybe are, are overwhelming to us, it just doesn't feel like we're able, Lord, that you'd remind us and that we'd be encouraged that Lord, you're at work in us both to will and to do for, for your good pleasure. May, may that be so this morning, that your kingdom would come, Lord, as we've just sang a moment ago, that your will would be done on earth, Lord, and in our lives as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point this morning in looking at just the first couple of verses is asking why. That's what we find David doing in the very beginning here. Verse 1, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, or year upon year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So Israel, they're in the midst of enduring a famine right now. 
Uh, the crops were failing and food was scarce. In, in ancient times, of course, this was very serious. Of course, in, in third world or developing nations today, it's no less urgent than it was then, but it's something far from our minds in, in the West, typically, and especially here in the United States. Modern farming, pesticides, and irrigation techniques have all but eliminated the possibility of food shortages, at least in our minds. A few years back, we saw it at least temporarily. Well, it is certainly still possible, but it was far more common and disastrous in ancient times. Think Little House on the Prairie. That's the visual that I get. If the rain didn't come when it was supposed to, and the seeds didn't sprout and grow, your options were pretty limited. Uh, without adequate crop yields and um, a, a people group were, were forced to migrate or they were simply wiped out if not uh, their population was severely diminished. Now, this wasn't just some aberrant weather pattern though. This, it, it couldn't just be attributed to uh, something that was gonna pass eventually. David knew better than to chalk it up to bad luck or happenstance. He suspected more and he was right. David, he decided that it was time to pray, to pray. You know, year one passes, year two, year three, and, and, and no doubt the Lord was revealing to him and impressing on him, this is something more. In verse one, we read that David inquired of the Lord. He asked God. Well, the, the people understood and David knew as well that God reserved the right to respond to sin and disobedience with national calamity. The, the goal being that all of the people would collectively <laughs> repent and get back on track. The law, it spoke explicitly to this actually, and there's multiple instances in the Old Testament and places where God made clear to the people that, that this very thing could and would happen. In Deuteronomy 11 verse 16, Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. He was warning Israel against idolatry. And in verse 17, we read what might happen if in fact they were given over to sin in that way. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. Now the context there in the law in Deuteronomy 11 is that that would be the result of Israel going after false gods. But the implication is that if they weren't faithfully serving the one true God, disobedience would be answered with punishment. David, David made that connection and he's diligently asking God to show he and the people where they've erred. God, what is it that we've done to bring this judgment upon ourselves? Well, later after Deuteronomy 11, and actually after the events we're reading here, God appeared to David's son, who will be the third king of Israel, Solomon. And it was after he dedicated the temple, which he'd been called and commissioned to build. And we read in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12, then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place that is the temple for myself as a house of sacrifice. Verse 13, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among my people, and then verse 14, which many of us are familiar with, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Israel as a people knew what punishment for sin was. And they understood God's requirement that they repent. But remember, David doesn't know yet what he or the people are supposed to repent of. It's a little bit of a mystery to David. So he's asked and God has answered. Verse 1, it, it, towards the latter part there, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. Saul's to blame. Though this exact incident, it actually isn't recorded for us in First or Second Samuel or any of the other books of history. But more detail is given us 
by the Gibeonites themselves. Verse 2, so the king, that is David, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. God tells David it's because of Saul, his, his sin against the Gibeonites in, in murdering apparently some of them. And so David, he needs more information and he needs to find the offended parties. So he calls them up and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites, Gibeonites excuse me, were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. This was a people group separate from Israel, but they lived there in the land. They descended from the Amorites, which were actually a part of the people that, that the Israelites were to utterly destroy when God brought them into the land. It, it, it was such that they wouldn't be a stumbling block to Israel, leading them into idolatry and immorality because they were exceptionally evil and wicked. But something had happened whereby these enemies were able to enter into an agreement under which they enjoyed favor and protection from Israel. And if you've studied that period of Israel's history found in the book of Joshua, you know that God was giving his people some, some pretty dramatic victories, right? Jericho and, and others after that. And the inhabitants of the land, they knew it. And they knew what had happened before that in Egypt and, and how God had parted the Jordan and all of this. Uh, word spread through the land. Well, the Gibeonites, they were terrified. And so they, they devised a plan to trick in Israel into signing a non-aggression pact with them, a peace treaty. The Gibeonites, they lived right in central Israel in the territory of Benjamin, actually. But, but the Jews, they were new to the area. They didn't really know the neighborhood or their neighbors for that matter. So the Gibeonites pretended to be from far away hoping to trick the Israelites into agreeing to terms of peace, believing they'd never really encounter them anyway, uh, not realizing they basically lived around the corner. And in Joshua chapter 9, verse 4, we read that they, the Gibeonites, actually in this passage they're called the Hivites, who were the, the predecessors, the ancestors to the Gibeonites. They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and parched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. They wanted to look like they'd been traveling for maybe weeks or even a month or longer just to get to Israel, to convince them, we've come from far, far away. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, these again are the same as the Gibeonites, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? They, they asked the right question right from the beginning, but they didn't dig deeper as they should have. Verse eight, but they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where have you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because, uh, excuse me, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. Verse 14, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. They kind of examined all the worn out clothes and the moldy bread and they thought, yeah, it makes sense. They must have come from far away. But verse 14 says, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. We could have a whole Bible study on that, couldn't we? Verse 15, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to live, to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Of course, not long after that, they discovered, they, they went to the grocery store, bumped into them, you know, the next week and realized, wait a minute, where, and then the whole thing, you know, they didn't literally do that. You know, somebody's going, but there were no grocery stores. I know, I'm kidding. But they realized what they'd done, and it all came out, but they were bound by their word. And they had to honor that agreement before God, so rather than attack them, uh, they actually made them their servants and, and impressed them into um, uh, being uh, indentured servants, basically um, slaves. But it was a foolish mistake that they'd made. Uh, they spoke too soon, you might say. But God values commitment. He values our word, especially 
in his name. He honors his word, and he expects us to do so as well. So they were bound, Israel was, to uphold this hasty and ill-informed decision. Well, we're not told when or given many details, but Saul violated this treaty. God referred to Saul as being bloodthirsty. And the Gibeonites told David that Saul had sought to kill them. The Gibeonites, in a moment, will describe Saul as, listen to this, the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Remember, where they lived was in the, the, the tribal allotment of Benjamin. That was Saul's hometown. And, and the language is pretty broad here. Uh, it, it says that he sought to destroy them from even remaining in any of the territories of Israel. It sounds like attempted genocide against these people. It wasn't just a, 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 a one skirmish. God was holding Israel accountable for this sin, and he was requiring it to be answered. Like Abel's brother, after he'd slain Cain, like Abel's blood, excuse me, after he'd slain uh, his brother Cain. Uh, the blood of these men, the Gibeonites, the Hivites, cried out to God for justice. I think it's healthy for us to ask ourselves a couple of questions before we move on from this point. And the first is, what does it take for you and I to pray? To quiet ourselves before the Lord and ask if he is trying to get through to us. If there's something we've missed or messed up at, and if perhaps he's chastening us, do you ever find yourself asking that? Like, I know sometimes we, you know, we'll say, you know, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? Sometimes we don't, though. The psalmist writes in chapter 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. At times, God is silent, or even the author of trials in our lives because he is getting our attention. I don't want to be guilty of, uh, of the error of Job's friends and assuming all trials are the result of sin. If you're with us on Wednesday nights, you know Pastor Steve and, uh, and, and Richard Zeno and myself and Jim Kelly, we've been working our way through the book of Job. Please join us if you'd like to, I joked about it before, be depressed. Not really. There's a lot of great truth in there. And I, I've really been enjoying this study. It's, it's very good. But um, we understand that not all trials are the result of you know, God's judgment. But he does discipline and chastise his children when we're in, in unrepentant sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, we read, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God was doing this very thing with Israel right now, and he'll do it in your lives and mine when it's warranted. He'll withdraw his peace, his presence, and his, his blessings, lest we become too comfortable and imagine that he's approving of our disobedience. Well, David now knows what the problem is, but he still doesn't know what to do about it. So he'll ask the, Gibeonite, uh, the Gibeonites, what the nation of Israel must do to make this right. Our second point this morning, if you're following the outline, uh, is making amends. Verse 3, therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? The Lord revealed to David the problem, but he didn't give him the solution. And in part, I think it's because he had to go and initiate reconciliation. I think that's what God wanted him to do. Israel, Saul sinned against the Gibeonites. You better go talk to them. He had to give them the opportunity to respond and offer a path to healing. David had to humble himself and make himself, think about this, he's king of Israel and he's having to go to this people group. They're not even... Uh, Israelites, there are people that are subservient to the Jews. He didn't do this himself, but, but he's the leader. He's got to initiate this. He had to make himself vulnerable, yield to the Gibeonites. How can I make this 
right. Verse 4. And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill it, any man <clears throat> excuse me, in Israel for us. So they said, whatever you say, he said, excuse me, David said to them in answer, whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. It might seem strange, oh, there's a few things that might seem strange to you in your reading of this, but it might seem strange that at first these representatives of the Gibeonites say that they don't, they don't want any money, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us, when that is what they end up asking for, actually. Uh, let seven men of the descendants of Saul be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord. So which is it? Do you, do you not want people killed or do you want people killed? My sense is that what they're saying, what they mean is that they don't want open war in Israel. They're, they're saying we're, we're not looking for vengeance on the nation, um, killing just any man for this in a random sense, but instead a retribution or justice that's more surgical. They, they want the guilty parties to pay the tribe of Benjamin. Saul and his men were the ones to perpetrate this crime and violate Israel's agreement before God. They should be the ones to pay, appears to be what the Gibeonites are saying to King David. And to this request, David quickly agrees. He knows it's the right thing to do, though he won't be haphazard uh, in how he manages this correction of Saul's sin. What do we mean by that? Well, before anything else, we learn of the one to whom David showed mercy and spared. They didn't get to pick who was going to be offered up. David did. Verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. A little bit of a two wrongs, uh, don't make a right kind of a thing here. God was expecting David to still uphold his word and commitment to Saul and Jonathan, that there would be protection over their house, and beyond that, his commitment to Mephibosheth himself. We've seen multiple interactions between David and this grandson of Saul, this son of Jonathan's. In fact, in 2 Samuel 9, 7, you remember when David first became king and he asked for any surviving members of the household of Saul, Mephibosheth came forward and David said to him, do not fear for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather and you shall eat bread at my table continually. But now he's bound by this agreement with the Gibeonites to surrender seven men of Saul's family. And of course, they didn't stipulate which seven, so David is able to choose. And in doing so, he preserved Jonathan's son, who was no doubt innocent. Verse 8, so the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth. <laughs> it's like if we weren't already scratching our heads, it's like, okay, wait a minute. Okay, it only makes sense. This Mephibosheth is not the same as the other Mephibosheth, okay? Pastor Frankie was just up leading worship. Uh, his son's name is the same as that, and so is his dad's, okay? So they, it's understood that within a family, you'd have people named after each other, so it's not the same guy. The two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Berzali, the Maholothite. Um, real quick, just to note, this will be the last one, I promise, awkward thing we're trying to understand in this chapter. If you're reading the ESV or the NIV, it actually renders this not Michal, but Mirab, and that's most likely accurate. Uh, Michal, who was a daughter of Saul's, was actually married to a Palti, not an Adriel, and in fact, she had no children, Scripture records. So we believe, and many scholars do, that this is better understood to be Mirab. Now, moving along, verse 9. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, these seven. And they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, 
in the first days of the beginning of barley harvest. This was intended to be a form of justice, a legal answer to the violation of the treaty that had been entered into between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. It doesn't appear that this was about the Gibeonites being bloodthirsty or vengeful. Honestly, if it were, I think they would have wanted an actual war or for more to die. Because I have a feeling, based on the descriptive language that's used, more than seven Gibeonites died. I, th I think we can almost be absolutely certain of that. Seven men would not have compared to the number of those that they'd lost in Saul's murderous rampage. This was about justice. This was about acknowledging a wrong and making it right in a measured and public way. Admission of wrong. That in and of itself is powerful and healing. How, how insulting. Imagine this, it had to have been to live in such close proximity to the Israelites and have this evil and pain unacknowledged and not taken responsibility for. Just sort of overlooked as time went on. It, it's easy to say that the past is the past. Let's just move forward. When you or your people were not the ones to suffer. God was on the side of uncovering and requiring that Israel deal with this sin and injustice. We should be careful about assuming that just because we've moved past something or are unaffected by it, that somehow God is unconcerned or unmoved by it. Sweeping sin under the rug, it, it prevents it from being fully dealt with. While it can be forgiven, it leaves those affected hurt and suffering. Far better to own it, repent and seek forgiveness and, make, uh, and the making of restitution. Verse 9, and he, that is David, delivered them, the seven, into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest, that is around April. Just as David was careful to spare Mephibosheth, he was, he was judicious, we might say, he was thoughtful in, in looking at the the tribe of Benjamin, specifically the family of Saul, he had to determine and select seven. Well, he knew who he would not select. That leads me to believe that he also knew who he should select. I think it follows that he would be careful in selecting those closest to the crime. Now, this is speculative to a degree. I personally think it makes sense. I think David would have chosen men who were party to Saul's murderous rampage. Maybe these men were leaders with Saul in what took place. I also think it's important to consider that if God has allowed Saul's sin to be brought to light, that he in all likelihood is guiding this as well. God wanted this dealt with. God knew who should stand in judgment. And I think it's very possible that these seven were the ones that needed to be in that place. Now, uh, as an aside, just something theological to consider here. Um, we want to be careful not to confuse this with human sacrifice, all right? That's not what's happening. These men, they're not being offered as atonement for fall, uh, Saul's sin in the sense of an offering, like to appease the wrath of God or something like that, um, as the... Israelites offered sacrifices at the temple or the tabernacle at this point to cover their sin as instructed by God. Human sacrifice was something forbidden in the law. This was different. Uh, this was justice being met. Punishment against a nation that had grieved God in harming their neighbors whom they had sworn to protect. This wasn't unlike, and hopefully this comparison helps us, this wasn't unlike a person being executed today for a crime that they committed, capital punishment. When, when, when a judge uh, brings down 
however rare it might be, but when a judge brings down that decision, we don't look at it as, 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 as though, you know, that person isn't going to be cast into the volcano and the gods are going to be satisfied and, and they'll withdraw their wrath. No, that's, that's not what's happening in that. They're not dying to pay or, or erase their sin. They are being punished for it. There's a difference. I can't die for my sin to atone for it. Only Christ can do that. These seven were publicly enduring justice on behalf of the nation. A wrong was being righted, no longer ignored. Now, there's a few things to consider here, something in particular, I think, before we move on to the next section of verses. Very often when we've, when we've blown it, we can be guilty of only offering an, am, an, an, an I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sure we've all done that. We offended somebody, we hurt somebody, we said more than we should have, we did more than we or didn't do what we, blah, blah, blah. And, and we, you know, I'm sorry is what we typically say. But more can be done. It's really a lot more helpful to the offended and to your relationship. And I think this chapter serves for you and I as, as a template as an opportunity, maybe in some, it's not a parable, but in some ways it's a picture, an illustration to help stretch us in regards to understanding our responsibility to those we've offended and what the path could look like in terms of making things right. An apology, uh, that is actually using the words, I apologize. When's the last time you've actually said that to somebody you, you hurt or offended? Or better yet, Will you forgive me? They're very empowering for the one that you've hurt. Like David going to the Gibeonites and asking what could be done to repair the damage, rather than forcing, when we say it's okay, or excuse me, when we say I'm sorry, really the natural response is, well, it's okay. But it doesn't allow us to give any voice to the pain, to the hurt. And we're not looking at this from the standpoint of giving the offended, the opportunity to really rake you over the coals and, and, and belabor something instead of forgiving, but we can skip too quickly to, it's okay, let's just move past, let's just forget all about it. Well, we can forget all about it, if, it once we've actually talked about what it is that we need to forgive, what it is that, that we're bringing under the blood of Jesus, what it is that he's forgiven that we're then choosing to enter into forgiveness about. You're freeing a person to express how they've been offended or hurt. I understand. That's painful, isn't it? Like, well, that doesn't sound very nice. I don't want to have to do that. Yeah, I understand. When we've blown it, man, we don't like to open the pain up further and actually apologize to somebody and give them the choice whether or not they want to forgive us and, and maybe actually even tell us more of what we did wrong that we didn't realize. Boy, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but it's actually much healthier. The process, it allows the person seeking forgiveness and the one potentially offering forgiveness to give full voice to the pain that has been brought into their life. And in particular, I would imagine those of you who have been hurt in some way or maybe have unresolved issues because the person who hurt you never owned it, I think this probably resonates with you. It's far different when someone actually repents and, and gives you the opportunity to respond and, and then of their own volition extend to you forgiveness. Like David, rather than come with our own solutions, some of, some, some of us that are more focused on being right than making things right, we tend to do that, don't we? We, we want to just come in and, and fix it all in the moment, and uh, we don't want to be tortured further by condemnation and guilt, and so we're going to skip over everything and just move just right to, let's just forget about it and move on. We should humbly ask those we've offended what we can do to make it up to them. And obviously, that's within reason, again, but still. If you're apologizing, you should be the one listening more and taking note, not the other way around. And so if you were looking to come to church and be made uncomfortable this morning, there you go. You're, uh, you hit the goal. I have a feeling nobody woke up thinking that today, but oh well. When Zacchaeus, 
that man who gained wealth by defrauding and manipulating his neighbors, we all remember little Zacchaeus, he encountered Jesus' life and minute. <laughs> that makes me think of when I was a kid singing. I was identified with Zacchaeus because I was always like the shortest one. And anyway, uh, I never stole from people in this way. But uh, his response to Jesus' life and ministry, what did Zacchaeus say? Luke 19, verse 8, he stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Not because not Jesus took up an offering, but because there was evidence of change. There was fruit. Because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A real apology is a humble request, not a declaration, not a command. And, and it should be accompanied by a willingness to make right whatever hurt was committed in so much as within, its, within your power. And I know it, always, it isn't always, but uh, rather than focus on the it isn't always within our power, this morning we're talking about what is. Now, that doesn't mean the persons you've offended can you know, ask for people to be hung or anything like that. We're not literally applying 2 Samuel chapter 21, but restitution, making amends. Back, though, to this justice that had been meted out, because despite this being the necessary and right thing to do, there were families grieving. David, he's on both sides of this. It's kind of a mess. He's got to do the right thing by the Gibeonites before the Lord. He knows that. But he's also king of Israel. And, and David is, has got to be uh, affected by these seven families as well, the whole nation, I would imagine. Well, this brings us to those families that are grieving, and our third point this morning is praying for rain. We'll understand that in a moment. Verse 10, now Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. This is roughly six months later there where these seven men were hung. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And so we find this Rizpah. This is one of the moms. She was mom of the first two that were named, essentially holding vigil over their bodies. She couldn't stand uh, to have their bodies out there in the element and exposed to uh, the different animals and, and vultures and things like that. And so she lays out sackcloth, which was sort of that burlap-like material that uh, was used in a part of mourning in that culture. And uh, as she laid it out on the rock, it maybe she laid it over the bodies, we're not sure. But she was there day and night keeping away the, the birds and the animals to honor these seven that had died. And she did that until it rained. And some have suggested, and I would agree, this mother who'd lost so much was waiting to confirm that her sacrifice was not in vain. Lord, I'm going to stay here until it rains. I, I, I believe what happened needed to happen to, to a degree. I'm not trying to take away from her grief or heartache in this. But her, her eyes were on the Lord. She wasn't cursing God. She was saying, I'm going to wait here until the response comes, until the answer comes, and how painful that waiting must have been. But those latter rains did come as they had in the past, and Israel's sin was dealt with. God's blessing and favor returned David was moved by this woman's devotion. A, a mom. He had a mom. And he wanted to do something in response to the, the grief that all of these families were feeling. Verse 11, And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up, and the Philistines had struck down Saul in, after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. In 1 Samuel 31, some of you might remember this. It was the end of Saul's reign. He and Jonathan were slain on the battlefield by the Philistines, and they took their bodies as trophies of war and hung them up. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they just couldn't abide by that, and so they sent kind of a, a, a special forces team to reclaim their bodies. Uh, and and bought them, brought them and buried their bones in their town in Jabesh Gilead, laid them there to rest. Well, David determines it's time for Saul and Jonathan to come home. 
and to be laid in Saul's father's uh, tomb, essentially. And to honor the seven that died after the rains came, David gathered their remains as well, along with Saul and Jonathan, and buried them all together. And in fact, we read of that in verse 13. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan and his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. Verse 14, they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So David showed greater honor to Saul and Jonathan's remains which were already laid to rest by bringing them home. And, and with their bones, David also gathered those of the men who'd been hung by the Gibeonites. And they, again, were all laid to rest together. Now, in these final verses, we come to the last battle recorded in which David participated. Verses 15 through 17, knowing when to quit, our last point. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him down, excuse me, went with him, excuse me, <laughs> David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, whose, uh, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. And we're going to be introduced here at the end to a few guys that were kind of in line with Goliath from way back in 1 Samuel. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go, you shall, excuse me, go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, you all know, you remember, David, he got himself in trouble for not going out to war, right? And he kind of purposed after that that he was going to make sure he was on the free, you know, maybe not the front lines, but he's out there fighting alongside of his men. And at this point in the back, you know, David's out there. Uh, no offense if you have a walker this morning. I love you, Jerry. But David's out there with his walker in the battlefield, and the guys, they're all standing around him trying to protect him. I, I'm kidding. It wasn't that bad. But the idea was they're looking at him going, look, David, we, we got to... We got to find a new way for you to participate here because uh, this is a little distracting for us. We've got a battle to fight, and you're you're a little bit of a target, and and you've gotten a little older, so you're kind of an easy target here. Uh, the, the the young guys point out to him, you're putting the nation at risk, David, um, and you're endangering yourself. We need you on the throne right now, not here on the battlefield. Uh, least the lamp of Israel, as day as Abishai put it. Uh, be extinguished. Israel, they needed David alive. Uh, he could still help them lead, but not from the front lines. So uh, that's where David is at in his life. And he was wise to concede. He understood that uh, it didn't mean he had no relevance. It didn't mean he had no place or ministry or service. It just meant that it was changing. And it was, it was time for transitions and, and generations to shift a bit so that things could move forward. And I think we've spoken at length about that here in this body, and it's uh, been lived out in front of us in many ways. So we now close out this chapter with several other battles recalled. Verse 18, not that you're pushing a walker, Pastor Steve, you're not. <laughs> it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai... The Hushite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Verse 19, again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, this is one of David's mighty men, the son of Jair or Agim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. Here we actually have Goliath named. His brother is one of these extraordinary warriors of the Philistines who's mentioned. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He also was born to the giant. And I know some of you are thinking, man, the Bible, what's this about? Yeah, giants and six-finger business sounds crazy. We've talked about giants before. The six fingers, that's actually a genetic abnormality. It's called polydactyly, and it still happens today. Um, sometimes it looks more like a deformity. Uh, it's still a deformity, but other times there's actually a functioning six digits on your hands and your feet. But anyway, 
uh, this guy, I'm sure, was just extra intimidating for, you know, somebody comes at you with six fingers. <laughs> like, whoa, get away from me. Well, verse 21. So when he defiled Israel, kind of like Goliath had done before Israel's armies, cursing God and his people, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And so our chapter comes to an end, recognizing that David's time of ruling as king is also winding down. As we close, uh, Pastor Frankie and the worship team, maybe you can uh, join me here. Give us the opportunity as we make it our habit to close our time worshiping the Lord and responding to his word. This morning's message, we titled it, Making It Right Instead of Being Right. And I think there's a lot of concrete examples for us of our need and our responsibility to be a people who are willing to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. And beyond that, to be willing to do what needs to be done to make something right. And it's hard to know what that is. That's, that's unique to each of our lives and situations, isn't it? It's something that maybe we need a multitude of counselors to give us wisdom in maybe simply seeking the Lord, but certainly speaking with the one we've offended. Sometimes it's simply responding to where God's calling us to grow. Stop doing this and, and start doing that. I think of Paul's letter, let him who stole steal no longer. New habit, habit patterns, new direction in life. The story's told of a man whose conscience had bothered him as he'd stolen money from the store he worked at years before. And one sleepless night, he could stand the weight of his guilt no longer, so he wrote an anonymous letter to his former boss. I felt so badly all these years for stealing from the register. Enclosed in this envelope, you'll find $250. If I, kill, if I still can't sleep after this, I'll mail the rest. <laughs> From an online publication today in the Word, I read how more than 70 years ago, newspapers carried the story of an Al Johnson, a Kansas man who came to faith in Jesus Christ. And what made his story remarkable wasn't his conversion, but the fact that as a result of his newfound faith, he confessed to a bank robbery that he participated in when he was 19 years old. Of the $1,000 that was stolen, 335 was his share, he actually uh, mailed the bank $20 and then borrowed uh, from a friend 315 to repay the rest of the debt. And this is not a joke. This actually happened. After his uh, confession and conversion, he then worked with officers to try to help in the investigation to find the other robbers. Well, the Lincoln Star Journal, reporting on the same story, wrote that Johnson had said, I had to give myself up to find peace. He actually went before his church and confessed and shared his testimony. But that's true for you and I as well. To find peace, to give and enjoy peace, we have to surrender. We have to give ourselves up, first and foremost, to Jesus Christ. It's only at the foot of a blood-stained cross. It's only at Calvary that, that our sins can be forgiven. And praise God, they can be forgiven. And, and forgotten from the mind of God because Jesus was sacrificed before us, the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But in terms of our relationship to others, we need to give ourselves up to find peace, first with God, but then also with those that we've hurt and offended, sinned against. We need to apologize, seek to make things right the wrongs that we've committed or at least do our best to do whatever it is that Jesus is calling us to in following and trusting him and I think we can go down a rabbit hole of torturing ourselves over things that cannot be changed we need to remember this isn't about God forgetting and forgiving our sins the, the Bible is clear in Psalm 103 that as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's helping others to understand 
that forgiveness by living out toward them what we've experienced ourselves and walking forward in the newness that he's called us to. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk by his grace in the change that he's leading you in. Did you hurt someone through gossip? Purpose to stop doing that? Did, did you withhold something that should have been given? Did you steal? Don't do that anymore. Be a person who gives. Did you tear down? Allow the Lord to do a work in you of, of making you one who edifies, who builds up. Purpose to walk where he's walked. No more in your own way. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that, Lord, you would help us to do this very thing which is beyond our capacity, beyond our ability. Lord, we want to surrender to you. And I just want to give you the opportunity to respond. If this morning there's something that struck you in the message and you know you need to say yes to the Lord and walk in some area of obedience where you've been resisting him, just raise your hand. I want to acknowledge that and pray for you. Anybody this morning? Yes. Anybody else? Maybe it's been really hard to actually apologize to that person. You know you need to. And it's just a moment of saying, yes, Lord, I know I need to do that. Father, for those that would say yes to you, I pray that you would give them the grace to obey, to trust you, to walk in the light. I pray that you would minister to them by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help each of us, Lord, not just to be satisfied with uh, being good ourselves, Lord, but that we would communicate the gospel and your grace through our humility through our willingness to take responsibility or that we wouldn't be stuck on just needing to be right but that we would be willing to be a people who make it right. In Jesus' name, amen.